Then we get to Manasseh or Joseph. So God then says, oh, so the other half of Manasseh, you get all this region up here, just like right dead center in the middle. And I mean dead center in the middle of the fertile region, not like the entire geography. So you get this, and then Ephraim gets this. Now Ephraim was also, um, sorry, right here. Ephraim gets this purple area, and they were also promised a headship by Jacob. Because, and they don't become the king necessarily of Israel later, but Joshua is from Ephraim. So they are getting the headship in the sense that Joshua has been leading them. And then when Solomon's incredibly disobedient and God decides to split the kingdom, and he, Solomon's son Rehoboam takes the south, Jeroboam is going to be a man from Ephraim, and God's going to go to him and say, I'll give you the kingdom of the north. And so this is how God is going to give them, but then Jeroboam screws it all up and loses it. But that's the whole story of the kings. Kings is depressing. Everybody just screws up majorly. So Ephraim gets, so these are the tribes of Joseph. Now, the narrator also pauses on another family called the daughters of Zelophad. Now, Zelophad was a guy back in Numbers, and he had no sons. And he died leaving only fathers, um, daughters behind. He leaves only daughters behind, and they come to Moses and are like, look, God promised us land as families, but we don't have, my father didn't have any sons to take the land, which means we're going to lose all of his land. And that doesn't seem like the character of God. And oh, by the way, he didn't die in judgment in the wilderness like all those other people. He died of a good old age because he was godly. So what do we do? And this time Moses actually did get to go to God. And he prayed to God, and God said, if a father has no sons, then the daughters will act like the sons in the land inheritance. As long as one rule is applied, they don't marry outside their tribe. Because when a son marries outside of his tribe, the land stays in the tribe because the land goes to him. But when a girl would marry outside the tribe, she's leaving her land behind that belongs to her brothers and going to her husband, and she's getting the land of her husband in another tribe. But if they, if God, now this is important. This may seem really unfair, like, wow, God really limited their prospects. But the point is God said, this is the land I'm going to give you. And that's the land I've promised to you. And if she marries outside the tribe and takes her land with her, then that's, that's the land's leaving. And if that happens enough times over hundreds of years, then this is all going to be messed up. And it's not going to be according to God's will. So God says, fine, if you have no sons, the daughters can act as sons and inherit. However, they must stay within the tribe. If they leave the tribe, then they have to give up the land. They now come here and they say, hey, remember, God made us this promise. You were women, and they're, they're advocating for their rights. And, and they're like, we, we get the land in Manasseh that God promised us. And Joshua says, yes, I'll give it to you. And he gives it to them. Now, this is really important because right now we've just seen two stories about women, not counting Rahab. So we see Rahab, a Canaanite woman who is so valued by God that he brings her into the nation and she's made it, makes it into the genealogy of Jesus. And then we now see a story of Aksa, who her father's taking care of her, makes sure that she's finding godly man. And you see that God is saying, you need to take care of your family. You need to take care of your daughters. This is important to me. And then now you see God faithfully honoring the inheritance given to daughters. 
If you read any other writing in the ancient world, and I know I say this a lot, but you have to realize the ancient world was jacked up. Today is jacked up. If you read any other writing in the ancient world, you do not see this care for women. Women don't have rights. They're not allowed to inherit anything. They're not allowed to vote. They're not allowed to have any positions. And I know it feels sexist sometimes when you hear about the men all the time, but the reality is that's because it's written in a certain culture. But at the same time, God goes out of his way to emphasize. When we talked about this when we went through numbers. God, there are so many laws. There's so much about protecting the women and giving them value and giving them rights that no other law code has in the ancient world. And then we get stories like this of women allowing to inherit, which you don't find anywhere else. And what you see is you have to realize that you don't find that anywhere. And the whole basis for the feminist movement is actually rooted in the Bible. Because this is the only place where we see that women have rights. Because you don't find that in any other document. And this is going to be very important because God is... This is interesting that God is ending this book like this. Because when we get to Judges, the way that women are treated is going to become a major theme throughout Judges. And God, one of the things that God is going to do in the book of Judges is show you that the way that women are treated is a mark of a health of a society. The, the, the worse that women are treated, the more unhealthy and ungodly they are. And the healthier they're treated, the more godly and more healthy they are. And this is going to become one of the litmus tests of Israel's health and obedience to God by the way that women are treated throughout the book of Judges. Now, God pauses in this land inheritance and starts talking about Shiloh. Now, Shiloh was right here in the center of Ephraim. And Shiloh was a very holy city. And Shiloh is where the tabernacles are going to end up. Once this conquest is all going to do, done, they're going to move the tabernacle to Shiloh, and it's pretty much going to stay there. Now, every once in a while, it might go on tour throughout the land, for lack of a better word. But it's ultimately going to stay at Shiloh. So chapter 18, verse 1, the entire Israelite community assembled at Shiloh, and there they set up the tent of meeting, which is also called the tabernacle. Though they had subdued the land, seven Israelite tribes had not been assigned their allotment land. So God is making sure that you understand, like, this isn't me not being faithful to the other seven tribes. I'm just kind of pausing for a little bit to talk about something else. So Joshua said to the Israelites, how long do you intend to put off occupying the land of Yahweh, God of your ancestors has given you pick three men from each tribe and i will send them out to walk through the land and make up a map for it of it for me divided into seven regions and judah will stay and its territory in the south and the family of joseph in the territory of the north but as for you map out the land into the seven regions and bring it to the me and i will bring, draw lots for you here before yahweh our god but the levites will not have an allotted portion among you for their inheritance is to serve Yahweh. Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have already received their allotted lands east of the Jordan, which Moses, Yahweh's servant, assigned them. When the men started out, Joshua told those going to map out the land, Go walk through the land, map it out, and return to me. Then I will draw lots for you before Yahweh here in Shiloh. And the men journeyed through the land of mapped out, and the cities out to the seven regions of the scroll. And then they came to the Joshua at the camp of Shiloh, and Joshua drew lots for them in Shiloh before Yahweh, and divided the land among the Israelites according to their allotted purpose. What's interesting is Moses already kind of told them the land that they're going to get, 
But then now Joshua's like, okay, we're going to draw lots for who gets the rest of the land. But once they draw lots, it kind of agrees with what Moses already said. So I, I don't really know what to do with this. Like, most scholars are kind of confused. Why did all the other tribes just get what Moses said, but then now the other tribes get allotted through drawing lots, but it ends up being what Moses said. So we don't really know what's going on here. There's something that's been lost throughout the years of being culturally separated from them. So now we go to Benjamin. Benjamin gets this region right north of Jerusalem, and Benjamin gets the city of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem hasn't been conquered yet. Jerusalem is still occupied by the Jebusites. So everything here is, belongs to Benjamin. So they get that tribe. And that's in chapter 18, verse 11. In chapter 19, verse 1, Simeon gets... Where are you at? I just lost it. Oh, so yes, yeah, Simeon is scattered throughout Judah. And then God basically divides out the rest. Dan is down here by Ephraim. Issachar, Zebulon, Naphtali, and Asher up here. Now, what's also interesting is for whatever reason, these tribes don't get talked about that much throughout the rest of the Bible. They hardly have been talked about so far. I mean, Judah's been very prominent. Benjamin's been pretty prominent and will become very prominent at the end of Judges and Samuel. And, and Reuben stuff, but these tribes, they kind of just start disappearing. And they're just briefly mentioned as a matter of fact, they were there or they were not there throughout the rest of the Bible. And so for whatever reason, they don't really play a major role in God's story about knowing him and how you can know him. So, um, so they get their divvied out their land. And so this is all according to what God has promised. So this goes throughout chapter 18, chapter 19, and basically ends at the end of chapter 19. And so all these chapters that were pretty much, I'm not reading through, it's just basically they have from this river to this mountain to this wadi to that kind of stuff. So you draw a map and you don't have to read it. <laughs> not that I'm saying you shouldn't. just saying that's basically this is the picture of what those paragraphs look like. This is God's faithfulness to give them these tribes. Chapter 20, verse 1. Yahweh instructed Joseph... Have the Israelites select the cities of refuge that I told you about through Moses. Anyone who accidentally kills someone can escape there. These cities will be a place of asylum from the avenger of blood, or also known as the kinsman redeemer. The one who committed manslaughter should escape to the one of these cities and stand at the entrance of the city gate and present his case to the leaders of that city. They should then bring him to the city, give him a place to stay, and let him live there. When the avenger of blood, kinsman redeemer, comes after him, they must not hand over him. Hand, they must not hand over to him the one who committed manslaughter, for he accidentally killed his fellow man without premeditation. He must remain in that city until his case is decided by the assembly, and the high priest di dies. Then the one who committed manslaughter may return home to the city from which he had escaped. So basically, what God did. In the book of Numbers, he dedicated a series of cities that people can go to if they committed manslaughter. So this is found in Numbers 35. Numbers 35, basically God said this. Look, remember there is no police force in the ancient world and there's no prisons. The only time you have prisons is like really superpower nations like Egypt. And the only people that go there are the innocent. <laughs> Okay, the, the guilty are executed. 
But the people that you don't want to kill, because they're kind of technically innocent, but you don't want them around anymore, like Joseph, you send them there. Or like in the Chateau d'If, if you know anything about French history, which shows up in the Count of Monte Cristo. And so those are where political people went just to make them disappear, because if you kill them, they become a martyr. But if you let them live, then they're a nuisance, so you make them disappear. Remember, these cities are small, so they don't have a, they're mostly farmers. And if you take people from their farms to become policemen, then there's nobody farming the land, and they starve to death, and your police die, and your family dies, and you have no nation anymore. So basically what it is, in the ancient world, it's the next of kin that deals with it. It's your tribe. Your, your police force and your civil rights are protected by your tribe. And so if you come in and kill my brother, my tribe is responsible for justice. And so I go out. Now, remember, in the ancient world, if you killed my brother, I would go out and I would kill you and your entire family. That's justice. So God comes in the law and says, no, 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 no. You, you can punish that person for that crime, but then you have to stop. And if you don't stop, then I'm coming for you. God tampers that down with consequences. But at the same time, because they have no police force, it's still up to the kinsman redeemer to do this. So if you kill my brother, it's my job to get justice because there is nobody else to get justice. Here's the problem, though. What if this person accidentally killed my brother by accident? That's called manslaughter. If he premeditated it, then that's different. So if this guy killed my brother, he can flee to these Caesar refuges that are scattered throughout the 12 tribes. And there he can go and he can say, I accidentally killed somebody. The kinsman redeemer is coming after me. I'm protected. And you're not allowed to hurt anybody inside this city. It becomes an oasis, a refuge. Now, what happens is, that doesn't mean you can just say that, because anybody can say that. It means that there's going to be a trial. So they'll wait for the kinsman redeemer to show up. Now, the kinsman redeemer is not allowed to enter the city, because that would be a violation. And this guy is not allowed to leave, because he's guilty. And so basically, they'll, they'll find some kind of thing, and they'll do a trial, and if they determine that this guy's lying and he really did premeditate it, then the law basically said the people of the city are to take him and drag him outside the city and throw him to the kinsman redeemer as the executioner. But if he truly is innocent and it was only manslaughter, then the kinsman redeemer has to go home. And if he goes in the city or kills this guy, then he's now guilty of murder. But he has to go home and be content with the fact that it was an accident. And, but here's the thing. There's still consequences. This guy now has to spend the rest of his life living in that city. So it is like a prison, but it's a city. So his family can move over. Like, if I, like, I'm not bringing my family with me. If I killed somebody accidentally, I'm running to that city as fast as I can. But because we live in tribes, I know my brothers and my uncles are going to take care of my family during this trial. So I flee as fast as I can because the kinsman redeemer is coming for me. And I go in this city, and it now proves that I am not guilty of premeditated murder. I'm a manslaughter. But now I'm stuck in this city the rest of my life. I can bring my city, my family, to this city if I want. And we can be together, but now we're here, which means there's still consequences. Just like there is today. You're not going to be put on death row, but there are still consequences for manslaughter. The reality is he stays there. It's a, it can be a good life because it's a city full of people and you can have a good living. But at the same time, this isn't your tribal territory or this isn't where you belong. And so he's stuck there. But the only way he's allowed to go free is if the high priest dies. 
And when the high priest dies, it's like the life of the high priest becomes his atonement. And he's allowed to go free. Now that's interesting because God is going to play a illusion off of that with Jesus. That we're all guilty of sin and we're only allowed to live, so to speak, because we're in a city of refuge under the grace of God. But then when Christ dies, who is our high priest, we're now absolved of that guilt because he becomes our sacrifice for our crime. And so this becomes a typology that the Second Testament is developing. That's chapter 20. Chapter 21 is the Levitical cities. So God then assigns Levitical cities throughout the tribes. And depending on how big the tribe is, he assigns a certain amount of cities for it. And you can read it to get the exact numbers, but the reality is he scatters them out. Now, one of the things that's happening here is Moses already assigned Levitical cities and numbers. But that was before the two and a half tribes took the eastern side. So Joshua now has to re-divvy up the Levitical cities to also include these tribes. And so basically what he's doing is, God will keep repeating, the Levites don't get tribal territory, and he doesn't say specifically why, but the narrator assumes you've read the rest of the Bible, or the first part. It's because they lost the land inheritance for killing the Shechemites. But because they stood next to God and they were faithful to him at the golden calf, he's giving them cities. So they're getting cities because they've been redeemed by their faith. But they don't get land because of the curse of God. So he gives them cities scattered throughout all these tribes. The bigger the tribe, the more the cities. And the idea is, God keeps saying over and over again, they won't get land because the Yahweh is their inheritance. Which means they're not going to spend... I mean, a lot of you guys know like family members who you've either worked on a farm or you remember you have family members who did work on a farm. You spend a lot of your life working on a farm. <laughs> it's hard work to stay alive, especially pre-technology. Well, pre-tractor technology. <laughs> You're going to spend all your time serving in the land, which means you have no time to be a priest, so to speak, or a pastor. So God says Yahweh is going to be their inheritance, which means they're not going to work the land. They're going to work the mission of God. And so they're going to serve God. Now, back in Leviticus, God made it very clear how they're going to be protected. They're going to be provided for through the animal sacrifices. So people can tithe. You remember, not everybody has money in the ancient world. So you tithe with animals, you tithe with whatever. So when they go to the tabernacle and they tithe their animal, or they tithe their goats or cattle or birds or whatever, those go to the priests. And God allows them to have that as a way of taking care of the priests. Also, you can tithe your land. If you inherited land and you're like, I want to show God I love him by giving a portion of my land to the priests, you can tithe it to them. So they can't, they're allowed to own land, they're just not allowed to inherit land. So it can be tithed to them, but they can't inherit it. And at the same time, when you make a sacrifice, unless it's a burnt offering, you don't burn the entire animal. The burnt offering you do, but the other six sacrifices, a portion of it goes to the priests to feed them. So what God is saying is, I'm going to be in your inheritance which means you will be taken care of, but you'll be taken care of through the tithing and the sacrifices of the people, which is pretty much what we know of like how pastors and missionaries work today. So they are given these cities to live in. What this does is it shows the Levites have to trust God 
It's almost like the more people sin, more people feel guilty about their sin, the more the priests are going to get tithed to. The less they feel guilty, you're in danger of survivalhood. But the other thing is the cities being scattered out means that there's religious people in every tribe leading them and teaching them. Because remember, every priest was a Levite, but not every Levite was a priest. And so only the firstborn of every Levitical family got to be the priest. The other Levites would be more like what we think of pastors, where they're not allowed to go into the tabernacle and make sacrifices, but they are dedicating their life to reading God's word, teaching God's word, and making sure that the nation is guided in a godly way. And so their cities are scattered throughout, so they're more effective in spiritually guiding the nation. So those are Levitical cities. 